Welcome to the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Join me for conversations about how to advocate for our kids in a one-size-fits-all world. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Welcome back, everybody, to the Mothers of Misfits podcast. We're here for another great conversation today with a new friend of mine. Her name is Mona Delahook. She's a licensed clinical psychologist with more than 30 years of experience caring for children and their families. She's a senior faculty member of the Profectum Foundation, a trainer for the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, and a member of the American Psychological Association. But it doesn't stop there. Dr. Delahook holds the highest level of endorsement in the field of infant and toddler mental health in California. She's a frequent speaker, trainer, and consultant to parents, organizations, schools, and public agencies. And as you can tell, she has dedicated her career to promoting compassionate, relationship-based neurodevelopmental interventions for children with developmental, behavioral, emotional, and learning differences. We are going to have so much fun talking today, and I know all the listeners are going to get great advice and strategies. Thank you so much for coming on, Mona. Oh, it is such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Emily. Yeah. Well, like I said, we just met, but I know we're going to be quick friends. And on that note, one of the things that you and I really relate to or um, you know, see similarly is this concept of misfit. And I shared with you a minute ago that when I named the podcast, I named it very thoughtfully and carefully and knew that word misfit can really sting. Mm. And that's why my vision for the podcast was to recall claim that word and take it back and sort of take the pain out of it because whether people are using that word about our kids or inferring that word about our kids, it's out there. We know it. We feel it. And what I see in human beings is that we are all beautiful, messy, broken, marvelous misfits. You know, there is no fit in, even though we've kind of established that notion as a society. But I I have heard some tougher feedback about that word at times, and and folks have let me know, you know, gosh, I don't, I don't know about that. You're, you know, you call my kid a misfit, and yeah. please know, everyone listening, that my heart is really to just point out what's wonderful about your kids. But Mona, I'd say you work with a lot of misfits, and I'd love to hear from you. What does the word misfit mean to you? Mm. Well, first of all, thanks again for having me on, and I, you know. It's a very, it's a triggering word. So let's just say mm-hmm. that we can be triggered by that word because it evokes emotions in us, right? Whether mm-hmm. we felt like a misfit as a child ourselves, which by the way, I did. I was an mm-hmm. extremely shy child and I really had a hard time feeling like I fit in. So I think that number one, it's a labeling. But what I love about what you just said is that you are trying to redefine our conception of the judgmental nature of our culture. And I'm doing the same thing. I believe that the education system and even my own field of psychology has done a huge disservice to those of us who are neurodiverse. And I say those of us because we all have individual differences. Like you said, Is there such a thing as being neurotypical? 
You know, is there even such a thing? I raise that as a philosophical question because in my training as a psychologist and even in the training today, there was this, there is this notion about what is typical, what is neurotypical? And I've now, I've worked for so many decades, three decades with children and families, and I'm really believing that neurodiversity is the norm. There isn't, there isn't such a thing as typical. And if you're going on a standardized test and if your child scored off on a certain test, that's an outdated philosophy. So I say, let's have a redefinition and celebrate being different. And that's why I chose to be on your podcast. I hope and everyone listening understands that I don't, I agree with you. I don't believe there are any misfits, nor do I believe that it should be a pejorative label. I think we should celebrate our differences. Oh, yes. You can't see me, everybody, because we don't publish the video, but I'm over here cheering and clapping because that's exactly it. And really dispelling this myth that there is such a thing as a fit in. And I've actually not heard somebody translate that to that concept of neurotypical and neurodiverse, but you're so right. And in our quest to maybe even very innocently create categories, we create good or bad. We create better or less than. And that's just not what it's like. But gosh, when we're parents of those misfits, it's a constant battle for the world to see just how talented and capable our kids really are. So oh, I love that you share my heart on that. And I love everybody listening. And thank you. And we can think of the way I think about the word is misunderstood, cast, right? Misunderstood. Let's take, uh, for example, autism. Mm -hmm. The way my field treats autism spectrum is that it is a diagnostic category that is affiliated with DSM, a psychiatric diagnosis, essentially a disorder. And I disagree. I believe that autism represents a form of neurodiversity. And in many years from now, we're going to be looking at it differently. We're going to be looking at functional capacities, that is helping people communicate, helping people let others know what what they need and what's on their mind if they can't speak verbally, right? Or helping individuals not have physical pain if they're in pain. But we're not going to be looking at saying, oh, no, this child has autism. That's not where the thinking is. My best teachers have been those autistic adults and children that I've worked with who are in the neurodiversity movement and who use identity first and are telling the education system and the fields of psychiatry that, hey, don't label us. This is a form of being us. So again, when you look at this, how harshly our culture treats differences, that my message is we need to celebrate individual differences and help children if they're suffering. Mm -hmm. Of course, we help children with challenges if they're suffering, but we don't try to make them all look the same. Right. And in right. the education system, I see that all the time. Children are are reinforced for being more compliant in scare quotes, right? Compliance rules. Okay, that's mm-hmm. just messed up because 
compliance basically is saying we want student A to look like student B and be quiet and not have, move their body or not say scripts if they need to. It's so judgmental. Our culture is judgmental. And what I wrote about in my book, Beyond Behaviors, is that we need to recast the paradigm of how we view individual differences. When we think about, is our child fitting in? We are saying, are my child's individual differences being categorized as positive or negative by the culture, by maybe our friends, our family, maybe our neighbor, you know, it's a lonely place for moms It's and dads. Mm -hmm. it's a, it, for parents, it's a lonely place because you'll be getting potentially feedback from the pediatrician saying, well, we're noticing some hyperactivity here. Or we're noticing some uh, problem, maybe some problems here. Or a teacher saying, well, they're really not doing X, Y, or Z, instead of saying, hey, this is interesting. Here's how your child's adapting to this situation. Let's be curious about it. Let's be mm -hmm. compassionate about it. And let's not mm -hmm. worry about it. We don't want to worry. We have enough worries as it is. Oh, yes. And again, you are so speaking to my heart because I learned the hard way that it can feel very lonely to be the mom of a misfit. And I too, I am a self-described misfit, but I've always sort of worn that as a badge of honor. And I found some confidence in doing my own thing. But when I became the mom of a misfit, it was a completely different dynamic. And it wasn't me, it was my child that I wanted to protect from that feeling of being an outcast, of being on the fringes, of being different and being bullied potentially, or having people make comments either to their face or not to their face. And it, it just, it brought it to a whole other level. And I appreciate that there's the potential for some shame around that. You know, I, we live in a wonderful uh, community, but probably what gets talked about more often when moms get together is, hey, my child's the captain on the cheerleading squad, and my child made the dean's list, and my child just got into this Ivy League school. And if you're the mom who's saying, you know, my child's failing school or my child just got a such and such diagnosis, you know, it feels like I can't share that. I have shame in that. And that's why I just, I love these conversations. I love this community. I talk about our listeners as the band of mothers, because again, you are far less alone than you think. I mean, we're all here. And you know, on social media and everywhere else, it can seem like there is this fit in, but it really doesn't exist. And yeah. I hope even if the only thing that listeners get out of this conversation today is just to feel a little less alone and a little more empowered to advocate for their kids, it might be quietly, it might be a little more loud at times, but yes, you've got this moms, you've got this and you know your kids better than anybody else. Oh man, we're, we're soapboxing it today, but <laughs> it's yeah. you have to hear that over and mm -hmm. over again, because the negative messages that we get are huge. You know, mm -hmm. it, this idea that a difference is something negative, right? I, I just want to say, I apologize to you moms for my field of psychology that is so judgmental, that loves the DSM. That is the the kind of the psychiatric Bible that we diagnose with, in case you don't know. 
Look, many top scientists in the National Institutes of Mental Health believe that the DSM is outdated. And I agree. It's going to be replaced with a more strength-based approach. But for mm-hmm. now, what we have to live with, and a child who looks who, who looks different and who may be not as fitting in the box of a straight-A student, you know, like you said, doing all these extracurricular activities, has a lot of friends, is popular. That is a stereotype that doesn't equate with a happy child. Let me just say that again. I, as a psychologist, I see so many anxious, quote, unquote, perfect children who are straight A students and doing well, but they inside, they have struggles just like those students who get C's and may have to move their bodies in certain ways or talk in certain ways, right? So Mm -hmm. there is no good or bad, but as parents, again, the brunches, uh, you know, the coffee talk and the cocktail hour talk and, Mm -hmm. oh, what's your child doing? You know, the comparisons Mm -hmm. are so, and and no one's intending to shame anyone. I'm not saying it's intentional, but to be, you know, at the other end of, oh my gosh, I I just had a flashback on being in a parking lot waiting for my kids one day and some standardized testing for the school district came out and the mom, a lot of the moms were holding the letters of their test scores of their kids and reading them out loud if they were really good. And I was holding one and my my kid tanked and I'm like, (laughs) oh my gosh, this is a moment. This is a Mm -hmm. moment of shaming. They don't know they're shaming me, but I'm feeling like I don't want to say out loud what my kid got because they're like half the, you know, at the lowest percentile. So let me just say, I get it. I understand the pressure we're under. And I kind of set it up as my professional career to dismantle these misperceptions about differences. Yeah. And one of the great things that we can do is, of course, celebrate our kids' victories. You know, I don't think we have to hide those, but that's where it's great to be open about the flip side of things. Because when we talk about the misfit moments, it normalizes that, right? It shows us that that is the typical. And I understand that that takes a lot of guts and it's scary and, you know, it's hard to be the first person. But if we all commit to do our small part in talking about the goods, the bads and uglies of being human and being a parent and all that goes with it, I think we're going to get to a better place in terms of here's what's narrowly accepted and here's everything else. And the everything else is bad or not okay or a disword, the disorders. And I, I think that's really the the small thing that we can all do is just be more transparent. Of course, to the level that we feel comfortable, it doesn't, it's going to be different for everybody, yeah. but a little bit more of that non-social media picture perfectness that, you know, I think we've all been trained to project, you know? We have been to know, again, to no fault of our own, but if you, uh, if you, I just can't tell you how many moms... I know who feel like they get, they just get this pain in their heart when they look at social media of what's 
you know, of quote unquote, perfect families. And it's, I, again, it's, there's no, I'm not blaming or shaming any parent because of course it's fun to, to celebrate our children's victories. It's a joy as a parent, because we are so, I mean, our children are, are so much a part of our lives and, and all that. So I get, I so get that. So, but here's an, a cool thing. And that is if we, if we move away from stereotypical success to real success, and to me, what real success for our children is, is helping them find their passions and, you know, helping them find what they love. And a lot of parents whose kids are in all sorts of sports, you know, like say the kids plays all the sports that they're of the seasons, right? For example, mm-hmm. and they're good at all of those. But to drill down for all parents to say, is your child loving that thing they're doing? Because other than school, we only have a certain amount of time in the day. So again, I meet with so many students who are, you know, later on high school, college, and they're like, half the stuff that I did, I hated. And I did it to please my parents. I did it because the school thought I, you know, gave me a lot of kudos because I was good at it. But let's have a long haul look. What we really want to do for our kids is help them to feel like they have a passion and and they're good at something and they're interested in it. Whether that's beekeeping or drawing pictures or illustrating or singing songs or writing poetry or simply just being who they are and blessing the world with their uniqueness. It's really awesome to take a step back and reconsider what we think success is. Mm -hmm. And as a recovering control freak, I know how hard it is to step back, give your kids freedom to explore things, to define that for themselves, to decide what they are and are not passionate about, to try something and then quit doing it. I mean, that's a hard thing, right? Because my mom did it to me with piano and my husband and I are inclined to do it with our kids. No, you started. You've got to see it through. And I think, no, if they've lost the passion, if they've lost the interest, then the world's not going to end if they quit that. Let's encourage them to get to the next thing. And of course, we honor commitments. You know, we talk a lot about the difference between making a commitment to something or not. But giving your kids those little lessons often and as early as you can to start problem solving for themselves, to make decisions for themselves, to decide where, when, and how they're going to put their effort into things allows them to flex those muscles and strengthen those muscles as kiddos. So when they get out into the world, they don't sort of swing the pendulum the complete other way, right? For those kids that felt like they never had freedom, they they might abuse that moment or, you know, but really we're just creating adults that have this opportunity to create a fulfilling career and life for themselves because they have those experiences in the safety of our homes to, to do the things that you just talked about. But man, easier said than done. I totally get it. And one of the things that I talk a lot about in our house, but also with my clients is getting really, really clear on the result and letting your kids, obviously with there's clear boundaries when it comes to health and safety, but inside of that, letting them get there in their own way. And they might stumble a little bit. They might mess up a little bit. But, you know, if the goal is 
get your room clean by five o'clock because grandma and grandpa are showing up at 5.30. My oldest, it's going to be 4.30, 4.45 before anything moves in that room, you know? But so what <laughs> if it's done by five? And, you know, the books might not be in alphabetical order, but so what? You know, and I think just trying to like not sweat the small stuff or not, more importantly, not imposing our best way onto our kids. And and it all goes back into this concept of right way, wrong way. Again, there are, there are morally rights and wrongs, of course, and health and safety boundaries that are hard lines. But I regularly ask myself, am I considering that as a wrong thing just because it's wrong for me? Mm. But maybe it's right for my child. And, and if they get to that result and, you know, we're staying to these values yeah. and, and safety guidelines that we've agreed to, then why not? I love that. I think why not? It's there's so much of, of what you just said. It's it's so rich because you know, how many of us like how many of us listening to this podcast are high achievers? I would imagine that mm-hmm. uh, perfectionistic parents and parents who have high standards like you and I, I think yep, hand is raised. I'm right yeah. here. Yep. <laughs> you called me out to be listening to a podcast cuz they want they have high levels of excellence and they want to be good parents so i so get that and this has been a, a journey of transformation for me i am not uh, exempt as a psychologist in fact i probably was even worse on my kids i know i was just ask them and they will tell you because they're adult you know they're adults now and they're past college and the voices in our heads, because I remember like when I would be insistent on, okay, you know, this is what you have to get done by five o'clock and come on, just do it. Carry your weight. I did. I was expected to, and I want you to be a good citizen, a good college student. And all this weight I had in my head about insisting for my child to comply with my high standards. And Mm -hmm. if I could do it all again, I would be, oh my gosh, I would be like, okay, it's all right. Leave the dishes in the sink. If you want to do them at 10 o'clock after you've done your homework, fine. Instead Mm -hmm. of the hill that I died on so many times is like, I want the dishes done by six o'clock. I feel better when the kitchen's done so I can go and do my stuff. I was very rigid. And again, I'm having a lot of compassion for myself because we have to. I was trained and a lot of the information out there is that high authority, high love parents yield very good results in their kids. So I just have to say that some of that literature on high authority, high love, again, is a while back. And it doesn't take into account the individual differences in the nervous system of the parent and the child. And so my focus now and all this stuff I've written in the last eight to 10 years is about matching your parenting style to your child's nervous system in real time. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is so freeing, Emily, and it yields joy. And I think that is the main goal. If you really ask parents what they really want for their children is They want them to be happy, but parents love experiencing joy. Joy is our highest emotion. And Mm -hmm. so many of our families are living outside of joy because we feel so burdened and pressured by life. And COVID made that even worse. 
So bringing back joy will actually help your child's body, their physiology, and you as a parent. It'll help your stress response system get back into shape and your cells and everything in your body, your what they call allostasis, your body budget is going to improve. So let's break that down in more practical terms, because it sounds awesome to match my parenting to my child's nervous system, but help me understand what that means and what I do to make that happen. Yes. And that could be uh, probably a, a five-hour training, right? Because <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Can we have the Cliff Notes version today? <laughs> yeah. So let me give you the basic Cliff Note version. Modern neuroscience and contemporary neuroscience, especially from some of the experts that I love uh, who are good people and study the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, such as Dr. Stephen Porges and Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, tell us that the state of our bodies, we have these different physiological states or states in our bodies. You may have heard of the fight or flight response. That is an actual physiological pathway that runs through a nerve. When your body detects threat, either internally or from the environment, detects that something is amiss, something's not quite right, we can, our nervous system shifts from this calm state, which is like the ventral vagal pathway, but just think of it as the calm state where you're like you and I right now, we're excited and talking about a topic we love, but we're not ready to punch someone out or run away, right? Mm -hmm. So when you feel red, literally we call it the red pathway, but if you've ever felt red and you feel like yelling or screaming or doing something to your kid that is like, oh, afterwards you feel so guilty about, that is a nervous system pathway. There's a physiological base for it. We cannot be in that fight or flight response to parent effectively. And so we have rescue strategies uh, that we kind of help parents sort out because everyone's different, like the rescue strategies we need to feel calm enough to parent. And so do our children. So in school, for example, when children were in school, many of our students who are who were categorized as misfits or or neurodivergent or not carrying their weight were in a state of internal distress inside of their bodies. So they may have been jiggly inside or anxious inside. Their heart rates may have been raised. Their hands may have been sweaty. Their palms may have you know been like that's one way of knowing if you're activated. You just kind of sweat, right? And But many times teachers don't know that. And in the education system, doesn't really matter. What matters is the behaviors that you're able to produce. So what do I mean by parenting with the nervous system in mind? It's understanding the state that your child is in. There are actually four uh, states that we talk about. One is calm. The other is fight or flight, which is when you're very activated, you're agitated in your body. It's not a choice. It's a default pattern. The other one is when you kind of shut down. That's a really stressful state. If you've ever felt like you're just dropping into a black hole and you cannot, and you're kind of um, frozen, that's very high stress. If your child is ever frozen and just sits there and can't even engage with you, 
please compassionately pay attention to that. If you ever feel that way, please take a moment, uh, put your hand over your heart and say, I need, I need some support here. I need some help. I need to call a friend. I need to call my, you know, my spouse and make sure my child's safe and take a moment for myself and regroup. So when we parent with the nervous system in mind, then we have a roadmap on how much to ask of our child in a given moment. Should we be, should we be insisting on finishing their work before they get to do X? Or should we just be sitting with them on their bed, looking at them with compassion, saying, hey, buddy, I'm here with you. This is rough. I'm here with you. I want you to know I may have just asked you to do too much and that's on me. And we kind of, we kind of read their body language. If all of a sudden the child kind of relaxes and maybe looks at you like, whoa, thanks mom. Thanks dad. Thanks for seeing me. They won't say thanks for seeing me, but that's what their nervous system will be saying. Thank you. It's so powerful, Emily, when we, see beyond the child's behaviors. And when we look at behaviors like defiance or lack of respect, and we see that underneath there's a vulnerable, hurting person, usually, you know, sometimes it changes mm-hmm. everything. And it shifted my relationship with all my children, all three of my children, I can tell you that. And it's helped the family. It helps the families that I work with a lot more than trying to raise the bar, increase sticker charts, do more timeouts, all of that stuff. It just works much better than our traditional methods. This is probably a whole other five-hour training, but if we can do the high-level couple-minute version, you talk about the difference between top-down and bottom-up behavior. I had not heard of that before. Can you give us the quick explanation and then why we should know the differences between those? Sure. And it's so cool that you haven't heard it because most people haven't heard the difference. Like, did you know that there are two major, at least, but two major categories of behaviors? No. Dad, I have a lot of these conversations and I've never heard that yet. We're very well read. It's because no one has really wrote about it or talked about it before, except for me. (laughs) And I love that because I'm happy to be breaking it out. And so let me just give you an example. Here's a top-down behavior, uh, which means that we are using that part of our brain that involves thinking, cognition, planning out. So a top-down behavior with our child would be having a conversation with them and saying, hey, you know, I see that uh, there was this problem at school. Can you describe what happened? Let's talk about it. It's basically discussing, using words, using language, using communication. It is top-down because it is mediated by our, of course, everything's whole body, but it's mediated by really our conversations and our harnessing the use of thought and thinking. Okay. Now let's have an example of a bottom up or body up behavior for a parent. Same situation, child's having difficulty at school. You go and sit by them on the couch and you don't say anything, but you look at them, the child begins to lean into you 
and you give them a hug. That is a body up, a bottom up interaction. It bypasses our thought and goes directly into our body's sense of safety. Bottom up or body up interactions with our kids can look like a gentle look at our face, a nod, putting your hand on a child's shoulder and then that you feel their body relax, a hug, song, music, dancing, walking together. I think you're getting the idea that it doesn't involve talking and reasoning as much as it involves something called emotional attunement. And in our culture, we don't talk much about emotional attunement and how to give it and how to get it. Mm-hmm. And so in a short way, what we, what we are thinking about our children, and this happens a lot with toddlers because we think that just because a toddler or a 10-year-old even, you know, can talk and walk and, and have opinions that they're always in charge of their behaviors and their emotions. In other words, they are choosing to do a certain thing with purpose, with intentionality, and with intention. But when the red or blue pathway is in charge, you are not thoughtfully thinking out necessarily what you're doing. And so when you're punished for it or called to the carpet on it, you feel really bad inside. So we need to distinguish between top-down and bottom-up behaviors so that we can apply the right consequence, essentially, to those behaviors. Mona, this is amazing. I'm learning so many things. And you have two books. Do I have that right? I do. I have a a book that I wrote for preschool teachers and early interventionists called Social Emotional Development. And then I have another book that is called Beyond Behaviors, which is the paradigm shift book on the difference, again, between top down and bottom up and and more. And uh, next year, I'll be coming up with a big general parenting book and really excited about a parenting book for all, for parents, grandparents, and everyone. So I'm having fun writing books. (laughs) I would say so. Fantastic. And I also know you have a great blog, very educational, lots of practical, actionable strategies there for folks that want to learn more about you, maybe want to work with you. How can they get in touch with you? Sure. Yeah. I have, there's a search engine on my blog at monadelahook.com. It's just my name and uh, my website, but I have a blog. There's a search engine. So if you're having a specific trouble with your child, just put in the word into the search engine. I'm uh, at the moment I'm finishing up my book, so I'm not consulting directly, but I'm available through my website. Parents can email me and also on Facebook, uh, monadelahook.com and at monadelahook on Instagram and Twitter. Well, thank you so much again for coming on and really expanding what we see as typical or atypical or fit in or misfit and really celebrating all the differences and the beauty in that. Thank you. Oh, it's such a joy to be here. And yeah, go out and celebrate those children with differences and see those differences as really precious. That will help their lives, help them distinguish themselves as they grow older and break molds. Those are the kinds of kids that change the world. So thanks again, Emily. Take care. You too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also invite you to visit us 
at mothersofmisfits.com.